This New America NYC event took place on May 3rd, 2016, and is titled The Morning They Came For Us, Dispatches From Syria, and features author Janine DiGiovanni, Middle East editor for Newsweek, and fellow International Security Program, New America, and Ben Taub, contributor, The New Yorker. So, Janine, uh, you have, uh, I guess, beginning on the security note, we were just discussing before we began um, how difficult access is in Syria. Um, and we see in your book that you have access on both sides of the confrontation line, quite difficult to negotiate, but a lot of that happens in 2012. So I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through the timeline of your reporting in terms of how, at, at what stage and what key moments did you find that access was diminishing, uh, it was getting more complicated to report, you felt like you could trust the people around you less and less, um, starting from the, your first trip in after the war began? Well, I think just to make it clear for people who don't know, there's two ways that journalists can work in Syria. Um, one is if you actually get a visa from the regime in Damascus, meaning Assad and his, the Ministry of Information, and if you get that, you're basically accompanied always by a minder um, who is with you all the time and is basically writing up what you do and doesn't let you go where you want to go. So you might see in today's New York Times, there's someone in Aleppo. In fact, he's in Aleppo, but he's not really in Aleppo because he's not on the side where the fighting is. He's on the regime side and he's accompanied by um, minders and the same with the Washington Post. It's not their fault. It's just incredibly difficult to get visas. Although, to, if I could jump in very briefly, to be fair, there is, uh, there are injured civilians on both sides of the confrontation yes. line. The overwhelming majority of bombardments, especially obviously those happening from the air, fall in rebel territory. Uh, it's a much worse place to live. But um, today, for instance, the rebels did shell a, a hospital on the, on the regime side. Most hospitals have been destroyed on the rebel side. Yeah, so just it is the, the 12th day of the Aleppo offensive. Um, last week, uh, they, they bombed the Al-Quds hospital where I had worked quite a bit, which is on the, the other side. Anyway, getting back to how we work. So um, I was getting visas pretty frequently to go to the Damascus side, and then I snuck into a town called Dereya, which was um, uh, the opposition called it a massacre. The regime said it was a prisoner exchange gone wrong, but whatever happened, there were horrendous human rights violations, many people killed. And I snuck in and reported on it for The Guardian, and they basically never let me back again after that. So then I started crossing over on the other side, which is crossing through Turkey uh, to get into northern Syria with, at that time, the Free Syrian Army. Um, it got increasingly difficult after 2012, 2013, 2014. I kept going. Um, but then our colleagues, Jim Foley and Steve Sutloff, were kidnapped and um, beheaded. And I last saw Steve in Aleppo. Um, and it, it, for those of us that have been working in war zones for many, many years, we, we do take risks and we're used to it. It doesn't make it any easier, um, but kidnapping is a whole other ballgame and the rise of ISIS. We started becoming aware of ISIS, I think, late 2012, 2013, when the checkpoints near the border crossings at Turkey, um, between Turkey and Syria, started changing hands, and we weren't certain which militias they were. Um, 
I then continued. I took a year and I did something which is slightly unorthodox. I went to work for the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, on the Syria crisis in 2014 and 2015, partially because I worked with refugees for all of my career, um, which is more than 20 years in, in war zones, and also because I wanted to see it from a different perspective, a different vantage point. Um, how did those roles intersect, and um, how do you find that the questions that you're asking change and the responses that you're getting change and the access that you have change, and also perhaps the motivations for some of the people who choose or don't choose to speak with you? Yeah, it, it was. It's very different, of course. The, you know, the UN is a, is a big bureaucracy, and I um, I had a team of very talented young researchers, and what we were doing is going into the field, into the refugee camps in um, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, uh, Iraq, and um, Lebanon, of course. Um, and we had specific, we had to do very quantitative research on trying to find out. We were we were focusing very specifically on Syrian women who are alone because their husbands have either been killed back in Syria or um, they were sent out and their, their husbands are back fighting. So it was, it was horrible, actually, and I write quite a lot about it because once they crossed the borders, you wouldn't think this would happen, but they were preyed on because they were alone sexually, um, not just by people in their host countries, the local people, but by other men in the camp. And many of them had a lot of children. They had no idea how to register them in schools. They, um, a lot of them hadn't been outside of their, you know, Homs province. They were very provincial people. So it was, it was, it was different. So for crimes like that, um, you talk a lot about, in your book, you reference your experiences in Bosnia, which was sort of your first big war where you spent a lot of time and uh, witnessed a lot of criminality. Um, war crimes are rarely punished. Um, the overwhelming majority of uh, perpetrators are low-level people who don't attract the interest of the international criminal justice system. Um, with that in mind, um, how did you feel? I mean, do you feel as though you're going, it, it, we're going to see a repetition of, of the scene that you described walking in Bosnia 20 years afterwards and seeing um, that war criminals are living in the same streets as their victims. Um, do you see that coming out in Syria? Do you think there will be some measure of justice once the killing stops? I would like to think there would be, but if we use Bosnia as the example, um, every, I try every year to go back to Srebrenica for the anniversary, anniversary, sorry, con commemoration of the massacre there where 8,000 men and boys were killed. And whenever I do, there's always different groups. Um, there's the women who, many of them were um, held in rape camps in Focha. And I was talking to one of them, and she told me that um, the men that raped her are still in her village. Um, she, you know, she is the one who's looked at as a pariah, not them. I think, I think there's only been two cases of the, the rape cases in Bosnia that have actually made it to The Hague. Um, so what you said, very often these people are not the big fish. You know, it's not the Karadzic or the Milosevic or the Assad that actually go to The Hague um, or Arusha or wherever the international um, court will be held. Um, it's the little guys, you know, in this case, the Shabia, the, um, the yeah. militias, which I write a lot about. Yeah, there's actually, if you could draw your attention, to, there's one scene that I was, as a reader, but also as a journalist who's learning about 
access and interviews and conflict uh, caught my attention. And um, it was it's towards the beginning, and it's about uh, you, you're looking for a number of women who have been who, who have been raped by the Shabiha, who are essentially pro-regime militiamen, um, operating more or less with impunity, uh, often perpetrating some of the most heinous crimes. Because they're not wearing uniforms, it's very difficult to pin them on yeah. any particular side. Um, and, and you say in here, there's a, there's a moment where you're trying to get access to these women. Um, and if I could read it, this is right. um, I, I tried to explain that I was not going to identify them or expose their terrible secret, and that speaking might in some way eventually bring the perpetrators to justice. That was the singular motive of the women and the men who agreed to talk to me, that the men who had done this to them would not be able to walk the streets when the war was finished with impunity. And so I was curious about, given what you'd seen in Bosnia, what is, I mean, what, given that their motivation was only that these crimes would be prosecuted, why, why would speaking to a journalist of any sort bring some resolution to them? Well, first of all, interviewing rape victims is incredibly difficult. Um, I did it in Bosnia, I did it in Sierra Leone, all over Africa, Rwanda. You have to, first of all, um, the reason I did this part of the book was that I think people tend to, if they overreact to rape and start calling it systematic rape, which is what happened, it, there was a report published by a group of women called Women Under Siege, um, and they actually wrote a report saying systematic rape happening in Syria. Well that kind of lights up all sorts of alarm bells and it causes all sorts of problems actually for the, um, the various NGOs uh, because then people start channeling their money into rape counseling centers instead of humanitarian aid. But that's the backstory. So I went and I said, I really want to investigate this properly. And I've been trained how to work with rape victims by Human Rights Watch, um, who I worked with in Kosovo in the aftermath of the war, interviewing entire villages of women who had been raped. And so I have some skills and techniques in this that you have to use, and it's very difficult work. It takes probably like well, you're no doing doubt it's very it sensitive. takes a long, long time. You yeah. can't just go into a room and talk to them. And a lot of time, they deny it, especially Muslim women, because if they if they've been touched, their husbands will never touch them again. Or um, if they're unmarried, like one of the women in the book, her her fiance broke off the engagement. So their lives are ruined, and this is part of the motive for the rape, by the way. It's a way of destroying society, and it's also, um, it's also a way of clearing villages. Because if you hear that the Shabia are coming and they're going to rape your mother and your, your sister, you're going to clear out. And it's, it's used as a tactic of um, clearing territory. So why do they talk to me? Um, it, I think that I, I, I never push people. I think if they, the ones who do want to, um, they want to, in some way, unburden themselves, and also they want to know that they're not alone, because that's the whole thing in these kind of crimes. These victims feel so isolated and so guilty that they've done something to bring this on themselves, and of course, they haven't. And I think, for me, the most painful thing is interviewing torture victims and rape victims. Yeah, certainly, I, no doubt. Uh, one of the most sensitive and painful experiences for everyone involved, especially those recounting them from personal experience. Um, 
Although I, I was I was just struck by the 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 line that speaking might bring the perpetrators to justice because I've, I've spent a long period of many months working with criminal justice investigators on a story where they were collecting documents um, that prove individual criminal culpability that actually can be used for prosecution, but accounts where the victim is anonymous, um, as the UN reports uh, do. The victim is anonymous, the perpetrator is not named. It's very hard to see how that can actually bring any justice at all. Maybe some sense of relief. Hope that it might. I think it's the hope that they, you know, I think that they have to live with something knowing that this terrible thing that happened to them is not going to just fade into nothingness, you know? And I think that's the whole issue also with anyone that's affected by war, by for refugees, for people that have lost their homes. It's that the hope that there will be some kind of retribution. Maybe not redemption, but retribution. And so I think they have to, not many people, as you know, believe in the justice system. Um, and especially, you know, the Hague it was always a big joke, even during the war in Bosnia, no, no one believed in it. But there, there, there is some sense that, you know, they have to receive some kind of payback for what's happened to them. Um, in fact, with regards to payback, there's a section where you're talking to people on the regime side. Uh, civilians on the regime side who have this fear that even though they may not support the government overtly and wouldn't necessarily mind if, if Assad were to transition power to someone else, they have this tremendous fear that if uh, the opposition takes over, often these are religious minorities, that retribution that you speak of will be carried out in terms of massacres among them. Um, first of all, do you assess that this is a realistic scenario? And second of all, how can a society move forward when there is such calls for retribution for crimes committed um, under the, uh, in plain sight? Well, if we're going back to the Bosnia model again, just because, and, and I hate to compare wars, but there are so many parallels for me and so many similarities in, in both um, that and it, largely that there are so many horrific attacks against civilians, deliberate attacks against civilians. Um, Bosnia was at the Dayton Peace Accords, which ended the war in Bosnia, basically froze front lines, and so therefore, like the the perpetrators were rewarded with the, the land that they had taken, and it it more or less polarized the sectarian divisions in a way that, for me, weren't much more than they were before the war. But what it also did is I think it gave a sense to a lot of people that they weren't going to, a lot, great bitterness. I go back to Bosnia a lot. Um, and there's this sense that these terrible things happened. And the people that did them, as you said, they're, they're walking around on the streets. They're, they're having picnics. I mean, Radovan Karadzic, um, who was the architect of the destruction, the leader of the Bosnian Serbs, was wandering around um, Serbia for years and years before they finally caught him. And it must be said, some of us do believe that deals were made during the Dayton Peace Accords to let these guys go, to let Milosevic, who was the president of Serbia, to let them go, to let them uh, remain untouched. Um, deals don't between- Don't mind, if you could clarify, is there evidence of that or is that a wide, widely understood? Um, it's more or less, it's more or less, no, uh, is it clarified? I mean, it's more or less believed that during the negotiations at Dayton, 
the French, the Brits, and the, um, the Americans, to some extent, basically said, okay, you know, if you sign and if you do this, then we'll turn a blind eye. But there's no, there's no proof that's known or public There was yet, actually, do you know it? There was a whistleblower recently who came forth with some uh, documents if so, we could, about Milosevic. Got it. If we could, I, I'll shift, sorry, back into, the, um, back into the process of reporting since we've been talking about some of the complications with confrontation lines. I was curious, there's a lot of um, passages where you have very vivid and, and long conversations and quotes. And I was wondering if, um, when you're working in these areas, do you record everything? And if so, is that a security concern as you're shifting between confrontation lines, especially given that, as you were saying, if you're in anywhere near government territory, you're going to have a minder. Are they going to review your tapes? Uh, do, you, do you choose not to tape and in instead um, approximate the conversation from memory? Like, How do you go about navigating um, basically accuracy and security um, when it comes down to direct quotes. Yeah, no, I, I don't use recorders because I, it would break. I mean, the people that I'm, if I'm interviewing a head of state, then I might bring a, uh, use my iPhone or something. But in this case, I'm talking to you know very frightened people who have, who are risking a lot to talk to me, and and it's usually a situation that you know we're sitting on the ground in in the woods somewhere or something you know a strange place. So I take very careful notes, and then when I get when I get to a quiet place and I go through them, and if I can, um, and I there is I, I most of the names here have obviously been changed. I, I always oh, say to them okay. first, "Can I use your name, or do you want me to change it?" Most of them say, "You know, you've got to change your name and the identity." And um, I learned a really painful lesson in in Kosovo about this. Whereas. It's a terrible story, actually. Um, my fixer, a fixer is someone that journalists use on the ground to translate for them and to help, help facilitate, um, to help us get around. And it was a young Kosovo Albanian girl who um, had survived a terrible attack in Pristina where everyone in the cafe had been killed except for her. So she, Human Rights Watch had been using her, and then they said, she's great, use her. And she arrived to work with me on this rape project about this entire village that had been raped. Um, and she was covered in shrapnel, and I said, are you sure you can do this? And she said, absolutely, this is my country, I want to do it. So we spent nearly two months um, talking to these women, great lengths, documenting it, and she started getting stranger and stranger and stranger. And it turned out, to make a very long story short, um, she herself had been gang raped brutally after the war, and she had a complete psychotic breakdown. And um, I wrote, I asked her if I could write her story, and she said yes. And I changed her name, and I tried to change locations, but um, it was published in the Times of London, my newspaper, and the, the Albanian daily paper, uh, Coeditore, um, took it translated it and ran it in Pristina where everyone knows each other so everyone knew it was her. That's actually a question I had for you as well which is horrible. about... It was a horrible lesson to learn. Yeah. You know. yeah, I mean what do you think um, when you're writing for an American or a British or a French audience do you have in mind that it's going to be read by the people you're writing about and in this book um, inter which covers um, civilians on both sides of the lines um, do you feel, and it also um, quotes, uh, there's also a passage of text from 
taken from a, a, an interrogation between um, um, rebels who had captured one of these shabiha, and they're interrogating him, and he's admitting to very openly to all sorts of horrible crimes, you know, um, raping people for six hours, and these kinds of um, these kinds of things that I was wondering if do you think everybody in the book were they to read the book? Um, what would be their reaction if they were if if it were translated into Arabic and every single person who's in it got a copy? What mm. do you, how do you think that the reactions would ra uh, vary? It's difficult, but I think that um, I think you have to tell the truth, but you have to be incredibly careful. And there's this one character which you know about um, uh, Hassan, who was a torture victim, and it, it's the most terrific. I've been documenting torture for many many years. This is probably the worst case I've ever heard where um, he was captured, and I don't want to give too much away, but basically he was operated on while without anesthetic, and organs were removed. I mean, it's horrible. And then tossed away for dead. So after he told me this story, and I was introduced to him by um, a human rights official I really respect, so I, and, I said, and he said, look, this story is horrific. But I went, and I spent a couple days with him, saw his scars, I read all his medical reports, um, but then I had to, after that, I had to call several doctors and ask them, could this have been used as a method of torture? Because I've never heard anything like this. And um, one said, and I, I write, write that uh, in my says, footnotes. Uh, he questioned the medical credibility of this account. Yeah. And the one, one doctor said, who was a Syrian-American, by the way, um, said, absolutely not. They were probably just trying to take his appendix out and got it wrong or something like that. So, so no. And then the two others I asked both said, unfortunately, there are, this is, things like this are done as torture. So I, I try to back it up, but what would he do if he read it? Yeah. I think, you know, I think every single person I talk to, I always, I'm very clear, I've never um, done, I know journalists who do it, and I think it's very evil, really, to not tell people you're writing a book, you're writing oh, yeah, an article. Of I mean, I, it happened, we know, with the bookseller of Kabul. Um, a colleague of ours lived with a family, and you know, it's a wonderful book, but she didn't tell them she was writing a book. And then the book came out, and she was brought, they sued her, and won in the European um, Court of Human Rights. So you've got to be really upfront. And that way, people don't want to talk to you. They don't talk to you, but you're not pushing it. Um, yeah. I'd feel too dishonest. Oh, yeah. No, I, I want to be uh, a truth-teller. So I, I, I had presupposed that you had told everyone you were writing about them. <laughs> no, but some people don't. Some people don't. They really don't. They just try to, you know, they try to get in there and get morally, yeah, bankrupt. Yeah. Um, there's a, I was describing the account that you did with, uh, with Hassan. Or, uh, there's, there's a number of descriptions in here. There's a lot of very shocking material. Um, uh, it's also fiendishly difficult to verify pieces of it. Um, and I was wondering whether, given, given that, uh, and you know, I know that there's ways to try to verify certain bits and pieces, but do you think that everything in here is specifically true or true in a, more of it is like, this is true in a broader sense that we couldn't, couldn't get from from the most carefully fact-checked accounts um, in terms of like you if you dispel of the material that you couldn't fact-check, mm -hmm. 
then you'd be diminishing the horror of the war. Well, the only fact-checking you have is them. And it's, you know, or you can, if they're telling you their story, you can go over it over and over again. So then you gave birth in the woods. What time did this happen? How did this happen? You can get more and more detail. And what, what I usually do with rape victims is um, very difficult, but you have to do it several times. So I don't meet with them once. I usually meet with them two or three times if they let me. And you have to go over the specific details, and it gets quite the minutia is quite important. So, um, you know, questions that are very, very detailed and it's very tedious, but I think that's the, the best way you can. Um, but sometimes journalists have to make calls. I mean, I was in Chechnya when uh, Grozny fell and um, there were, to, fell to Russian forces and, and it was horrific, horrific bombardment. And there was no one there except me and a German photographer there was no UN, there was no Médecins Sans Frontières, there were no aid workers, there were no other journalists. So there was no Reuters that I could check and see, has Grozny fallen? And I'd ask the commanders, the Chechen commanders, and of course they're gonna say, no, it hasn't fallen, we're gonna fight on. But it had fallen. To me, all of the military um, tactics that I know, the soldiers had retreated, the city was cleared, they were, they were regrouping outside of the city. So. I called my editor in London on the satellite phone and said, um, he said, has it fallen? And I said, I don't know. And he said, we need to make a call right now. Has it fallen or hasn't it? And I said, it's fallen. And they, the huge headline the next day was, Grozny falls to Russian forces. And thank God I was right. <laughs> but you know, but it, um, <laughs> it could have gone the other way. Wow. You know? Because <laughs> so I had no one deadline. to check it with. <laughs> but, and sometimes wow. you do have to make Calls and luckily, I'm not a news reporter. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, a long format investigation. That's what I do. So I, I do have the time to go to various people and say, "Look, does this sound right to you?" And yeah. something isn't. Uh, often, um, victims of torture in Syrian prisons uh, are giving false confessions to crimes that they didn't commit, um, and then after that, because these detentions happen pre-prosecution. So th these people would be sort of rounded up, um, detained and interrogated, uh, tortured into th admitting crimes they had committed, and then enter the judicial system where they can be prosecuted in court for these things they've admitted to. But these false confessions happen under torture, not just by the Syrian regime. Uh, rebels torture their prisoners of war, execute their prisoners of war uh, with unknown frequency, but likely to the same uh, ratio as the regime does. Um, given that, w was, it, was it difficult to like, make that decision to include the, the passage, the excerpt of the Shabiha guy's confession to these horrific crimes that no doubt uh, many of the Shabiha were committing horrific crimes, but do we even know that this man was actually a part of it? Or may he have been someone who got picked up off the street for being the wrong sect, for instance? Yeah. Um, no, what what mean, was that decision I like? think I, I want it to include this long transcript because I think I want it to give a sense of what, what does happen. He was captured, he was questioned, but it's, it's up to the reader then. I think I give enough balance in the book, which yeah. I was very, very careful to do. It was very difficult because it's, you know, when I was a much younger reporter and covering my first wars, um, it, was, it was very 
easy to identify the good guys and the bad guys. Um, and I was talking to someone earlier from um, the Marshall Project, who uh, formerly was at Human Rights Watch, and she said, you know, Janine, we, we grew up in the time of humanitarian intervention, you know, and, and that was the era that we became reporters in. So we, um, we had much more of a sense that there would be some kind of justice, or people would come and help. And, you know, Iraq killed all that with the mess in Iraq. Humanitarian intervention will, will never happen again. I mean, or, or it would have happened in Syria in 2013. But um, I think what I'm trying to do is to give balance to all of it. I didn't, and I was quite conscious. It's interesting you asked that. I didn't want people to say um, she's a stooge for the opposition, because I'm not, because I write a lot about their war crimes. And, um, you know, I write a lot about their flaws. I mean, my. The apartment I stayed in, in Aleppo, um, was, it belonged to, well, it didn't belong to, we were, it was a kind of hollowed out apartment that had been bombed, and it was a guy from the Free Syrian Army, I was staying with them, and um, two weeks after I left, he was murdered. Is this yeah, yeah. And we don't, you know, we still, it was some dodgy FSA, yeah. but then, um, a couple months later, I went back to Aleppo, and I stayed with a different group of guys. And between the time I had been there, they had suddenly become so radicalized. What is that? It sounds like a flood. Maybe we can turn down the thing for a moment. They had become so radicalized that I was staying with a, I was with another can woman. Everyone, sorry, can everyone hear? If we, should we just speak up yeah, for a moment? Right, I could yeah. speak louder. Speak louder. I was staying, I was working with a, another female journalist, Nicole Tong, uh -huh. and who's a photographer. And they, they, these guys, literally, these FSA guys, made us stay in the bedroom and um, to eat and to, they, they didn't want us, they had begun to become so extreme in their thinking that we couldn't come out even to go to the bathroom until, unless we put our entire gear on and our hijabs. And, and um, one time I wandered into the uh, living area because they had a generator set up and a sat phone and I wanted to try the internet. and they. They had changed so much in such a short period of time. Um, and I was very aware of, of what was going on on the opposition side. So I really didn't want to make it. Oh, um, I wasn't suggesting a political no, no, I know. preference. I, I was just I was curious about the, the decision to, um, to include um, a passage of, of uh, confession that might have been induced under very serious circumstances, uh, torture. Yeah. Basically, yeah. well, I think I give that I leave the yeah, openness you, you of it, and I think scenario. that's when yeah. that's when footnotes are very useful <laughs> in books because then you could say this report was taken from um, Amnesty International interview that took place, and so I mean I think you leave it open to the reader to decide, and I think that's important to do. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.